Well, good evening. Um, Anna looked at me several hours ago and asked, are we marking it up tonight? And I said, you know it. <laughs> Take out your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 27 through 38. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through uh, 38. As we grow up in childhood we often, and, and into adulthood, we often hear a lot of musts. You must clean your room. You must be nice to your sister or your brother. You must be home by 10 o'clock. And likewise, while when we read the Gospels, and specifically the Gospel of Mark, as we're going to see tonight, we see several musts of the Christian life as well. Lifestyles that we are to embrace if we follow Jesus, the Messiah. So we're going to look at a passage tonight that gives us several musts. Things that we must do. Lifestyles that we must embrace and adhere to if we're going to follow Jesus and be the people that he wants us to be. So take out your Bible and turn with me there uh, to, the, to the Gospel of Mark. Remember what we talked about last time. It was several weeks ago, but we talked about spiritual blindness. We looked at the first part of Mark chapter 8. Uh, we looked at uh, several stories that had to do with people seeing Jesus and His power, His authority, and His compassion firsthand. They saw Him. They witnessed Him. His mighty miracles, His healing power, His power to cast out demons... Uh, and, and to forgive sins, like they, they witness these things, they see these things, but yet they can't see. It's as if they're blind. Uh, there are some, the opponents of Jesus, the, the, the Pharisees, who uh, say, you know, give us a sign. Give, give, us, give, give us something so that we can believe when there, are, when there were really signs all around them. And likewise, even those closest to Jesus, even those that were nearest to him, that saw all of these first, the all, that saw all these things firsthand, they still suffered from this kind of spiritual blindness or spiritual nearsightedness. And we looked at that story uh, halfway through Mark chapter eight, in which Jesus heals a blind man, but he only heals him partially uh, the, the first time that he touches him. Um, and it's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, guys, I mean, you, I've, I, I've touched you. I've intervened in your life. But yet, and, and you see all these things, but yet you can't see. It's like you're like this blind man. Uh, but then Jesus touches uh, the man and, 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 he's, and he's healed. Now we're going to look at the second part of Mark chapter 8, which tells us, uh, as Paul Harvey, if you have ever listened to him before, the rest of the story. Uh, so look with me there in verse 27, if you will, of Mark chapter 8. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Now, if you read the Gospels, and you see this in all Gospel accounts, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus asking people, various people, various questions, 
various kinds of questions. Jesus, at, or, or a lawyer rather in Luke chapter 10, uh, comes up to, to Jesus and asks him, what shall I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus uh, fires back at him with a question, well, what's in the Bible? <laughs> uh, what's, what's in the law? How do you read it? A question that, that Jesus asked. I will read in John chapter 6. He's, he, he asks his disciples after he said a lot of hard things. Uh, he said, are you guys going to leave? Like these people have left upon hearing things that are difficult to, uh, to take in, difficult to grasp. He asked them a question uh, there. He, he asked Peter later in the gospel of John, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? So we see Jesus in the Gospels asking uh, questions uh, over and over again. And, and you know, he, he didn't ask questions to figure out answers. Jesus is God. He knows, he knows the answers. He asks questions uh, to stimulate thinking, uh, to get his disciples specifically uh, to, to think. Um, and he asks questions to... Uh, reveal spiritual truth. And we see that here in this case. In, in our passage, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? He's asking about what's, what's, the, what's, what's the 411 about what people say about who I am? What's the popular opinion about my identity? What are people saying about me? I want to hear it from you. That's what Jesus asks. And then this is how they reply in verse 28. And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. Jewish people at this time, they, they anticipated a, a time when a trustworthy prophet... Remember in this day and time, we've, we've gotten past the intertestamental period, uh, that 400-year block from Malachi to the present... Uh, in, this, in, in this case in which God was silent. Uh, we've gone 400 years without God speaking directly through a prophet. And so they're anticipating another prophet to come and to give them a declaration from God, a word from God. Uh, maybe, maybe this Jesus is, uh, is one of those prophets that's going to break the silence and, and bring of some message from God. Some people perceive this Jesus as John the Baptist. As uh, John the Baptist uh, raised from the dead, like, like Herod Antipas uh, thought Jesus was. In, uh, we, we've already looked at that in Mark chapter 6. Um, that's, what, that's what he thought. He thought the identity of Jesus was. Um, many, many, of, many, many of the Jewish people uh, thought that um, one of the prophets would probably be raised and give new revelation from God. Uh, prophets like Elijah... In Matthew's account, Matthew mentions Isaiah and Jeremiah. Maybe this Jesus is one of those. Maybe Jesus is mighty Elijah. Maybe he's Isaiah. Maybe he's Jeremiah, resuscitated, come back from the dead to give us a new declaration from God. So... People were saying all kinds of things about Jesus. There's, there's all kinds of uh, talk and gossip and things going around about who he could be. Because he's for sure somebody very prominent. He's somebody that carries a lot of weight. He's somebody very significant. 
uh, as, as seen by what he can do, by the things that he can perform and the miracles that he's, he's doing throughout the region. But Jesus, he wants to hear from the disciples. He wants to hear from those that are closest to him. Who, I want to hear what you think about me. And that's what he says in the next passage. In the first part of verse 29, it says, And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Now, now at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been with his disciples for a good while now, for, 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 a, couple, for a couple years. Um, and, and one would maybe think that it would be more productive for Jesus to just tell them, Hey guys, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. You know, you think it would go a lot better if, it, if Jesus would just stop beating around the bush and just come out and say, hey, this is me. This is, this is who I am. But that's not how Jesus operates. Uh, uh, Jesus wants them to look at the evidence. Jesus wants them to look at everything that they see around him and to piece the puzzle together and have faith in him. Jesus wants them to draw their own conclusions based upon uh, all of these signs and wonders and miracles that are being performed around them. And he wants us to do the same as well. So Jesus asks them this question, but who do you say that I am? And this is what uh, the impetuous Peter says in the second part of verse 29, extending into verse 30. Peter answered, and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. So Peter, bold Peter that usually speaks up first, it's kind of brash, uh, he, he speaks up first. And, and in, in the context of this, he's speaking for the group. Uh, this is what the group overall thinks. Uh, Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word, uh, Mashiach, God's anointed one, God's king, king over Israel, the deliverer that would come, that was prophesied about, that would save Israel, that would redeem Israel, and, and, um, and, and all of that. We see, we, see, we see prophecies about the Messiah um, all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus declares, Peter declares, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are the Messiah. And it's, uh, you know, we, we think, uh, if, if you look at where this is in the Gospel of Mark, it's about halfway. Uh, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, it's about halfway through uh, the material, we saw in verse 1 how, um, verse 1 in, in Mark, chapter, Mark chapter 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the, go the gospel itself identifies Jesus as the Messiah, um, and so we as the readers kind of see this, but Peter and the rest of the disciples are just now catching on to this fact. That Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. They're finally starting to get it. They're finally starting to see. The spiritual blinders are finally starting to come off. 
And they're beginning to see who he is. They're beginning to see his identity. Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And it's at this point when Peter confesses, speaking for the group, that you are, we, we believe you to be the one prophesied about in the Old Testament as the Messiah. We believe that. It's at that point when Jesus begins to speak plainly about his mission, about what he has come to earth to do. Uh, Jesus spoke in parables and riddles a lot up to this point, but now as they see him for who he is, as they begin to see him, he starts to talk plainly. And this is what he says in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He begins to talk to them plainly. He begins to talk to them straight. He gives them like, he, he, he tells it like it is. He says, here's what must happen. I must be rejected. All of these people, all of my opponents that are trying to discredit me, that are trying to uh, render me a fool uh, and, and make me look bad so I stop preaching, I must be rejected by them. And not only that, but I must suffer at their hands, Jesus says. I must suffer an agonizing experience, as we see later in the Gospel of Mark. That must happen. Jesus says, I must be killed. I must be killed. And he also says, I must be raised three days later. That's his mission. It was to come to this earth, to live among us, to be rejected, to suffer, to die. As we talked about this morning, bearing the weight, bearing the guilt, bearing the sin of many. And then three days afterward, Rise from the grave, defeating death, conquering death, giving all of those who submit to him hope of also rising from the grave when Jesus returns on the last day. That's what he has come to do. And he's beginning to reveal that to his disciples. But however, that doesn't sit very well with them. That's not in the plan in their minds. That doesn't register Look with me in verse 32. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter comes up to him and says, No, 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 Jesus. This is not going to happen. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be killed 
You're not going to suffer and die. You're, what's this talk about you rising from the grave? Jesus, you're going to be a military leader. You're going to overthrow the evil and oppressive Roman Empire and you are going to establish a, a Davidic kind of monarchy and raise Israel to a status of, of, of a nation like we were in the days of King David. And all nations will look to us again as a holy priesthood and we will be a light to the world. That's what's going to happen, Jesus. You're, quit talking about all of this stuff you must do because that's not in the plan. That's not going to happen. This will not happen. And this is what Jesus has to say about that in verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus essentially is saying, this, Peter, this must happen. This must happen. I must suffer. I must. I must suffer an agonizing experience. I must be rejected by my own people. I must be killed. I must rise on the third day. Because if I don't, if that doesn't happen, happen if I don't suffer, if I am not rejected, if I don't die, and if I'm not raised from the grave, then you have no hope. No hope whatsoever. And in this passage, Jesus, he identifies uh, Satan as the origin of Peter's words. It's as, if, it's as if the words of Satan are coming out of Peter's mouth when he says that this, this is not going to happen, Jesus what you have decided, this crazy plan that you have concocted that is not within my register at the moment, it's not going to happen. It's as if Satan is talking in that moment. Uh, and, and that's what Satan does throughout the whole gospel story. Satan does everything in his power, and you see this through the, through the temptation of Jesus, you see this in many other, many other occasions, um, but Satan does everything in his power to keep Jesus off the cross. Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Does everything to keep him from the cross. Because if he can keep Jesus off the cross, if he can keep him from being rejected, suffering and dying and rising on the third day, then the world is doomed. Jesus must, he must go to the cross. He must be rejected. He must suffer. He must die. And he must be raised on the third day. And he has. He has. 
Spoiler alert. <laughs> that's, that's what happens in, in the, the rest of the, of, the, of the Gospel of Mark. He has accomplished the work to set us free. However, Jesus goes on to tell us that to be His disciples, to be His followers, you must likewise follow suit and carry out several musts in your own life as Jesus has as well in His. Look with me in verse 4 of Mark chapter 8. And He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. And Jesus isn't only talking to the crowds here. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. If you want to come after me, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples, if you want the saving benefits applied to your soul, then here's what you must do. You must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. What does that mean? You must deny yourself. You know, on, on the surface, it, it seems like Jesus is saying that, you know, to follow me, you got to deny yourself. You have to uh, devoid yourself of all pleasure. You have to renounce all of the things that uh, you, 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 have, you have to become miserable essentially. Deny yourself. Take, take the pleasure out of life and you can be my disciple. That's the way I used to think. I used to think kind of like that. I used to have that definition of self-denial as, as a kind of existence where I, to follow Jesus, the, it's not really, I'm, I'm going to have to live a life that's devoid of pleasure, that's devoid of joy, uh, I'm going to have to become miserable <laughs> if I want to deny uh, or, or if I want to follow Jesus and, and I want to uh, deny myself. However, the self-denial and what, what this means, and we see this throughout the entire New Testament, the entire Bible, um, the self-denial that Jesus calls us to is not making yourself miserable every waking moment. Of course, following Jesus is not always easy, and it's not going to be all dandelions and roses all the time. That's not, that's not, what, I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, but but, but self-denial doesn't mean making yourself miserable every waking moment. What self-denial means is rather ceasing to make the self as the object of your life. That's self-denial. It's a transformation of what I view as the purpose of my life. God, not myself anymore, as I once thought by my, by my thinking, by my actions, by the way I treated other people, but God not myself, is now the center of my life. I deny myself. 
I deny myself, when I make God's purposes and will the center of all of my hopes, all of my affections, and all of my dreams. That's self-denial. When, when I live joyfully, self-denial is joyful. It's a joyful lifestyle. Self-denial is a, is a joyful life. It's a life of service for other people. It's a life that's lived in submission, in joyful submission to the commandments of God. It's a life that lives to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a life that places God at the center of it all, at the center of everything. It's a life that redefines my purpose for living as aligning God's will with my own will. And the result is a very joyous life. That's self-denial, and you must do it if you want to follow Jesus. You must, you must place God at the center of everything and deny yourself, not yourself at the center. Uh, keep going. Verse 35. Jesus also says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. In other words, you must, you must value Jesus and the good news above your own life. And what this is getting at is that you might be, you might be persecuted. You might be presented with an opportunity of with somebody's, somebody's going to say, I'm going to take your life. I'm going to take it from you if you don't renounce what you believe and the good news that, that you claim to live by and that you claim that has, that has changed you. I'm going to take it from you if you don't renounce that. But Jesus says to be his follower, to, be, to live in him, you must value him and the good news above your own life. You must be willing to lose your life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the good news, because he's your treasure, because you value him supremely above, any el above, above anything else, above all else. That's what you must do. Also look with me in verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul. Another way you could say that is that you must, you must have the right priorities. You must have the right priorities. Legend has it that Robert Johnson, if you've ever heard of him, he was a, a notable uh, musician in the early part of the 20th century, uh, but legend has it that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads, and what he sold his soul for uh, was so that he could be a master over, over the guitar, 
and, and pe people said there's nobody that could play like, like Robert Johnson after, after, he, after, he did, after he did that. You know, we look at that and we say, how, how, how silly. From, from a spiritual perspective, how, how silly. Why would you exchange your soul, your eternal soul, to Satan for something so temporal, something so temporary as, as being able to play the guitar. We would look at that and say, how silly. But yet, people sell their souls to the devil every day, every hour, every minute, in exchange for things that will never last, things that are fleeting, things that are here one minute and then gone the next. And it's because they don't have the right priorities. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples, you must value your soul more than you value, you value fleeting things that will never give you life, that will only be pleasurable for a short amount of time and then, like a vapor, will vanish away in an instant. You must have the right priorities. And then lastly, we see in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You must, you must not be ashamed. You must not be ashamed. You know, we're, we're ashamed of people who let us down. People who, we, 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 they do something in our life and we realize that they're not the person that we thought that they were. We, we're, we're ashamed of people who can't be trusted. We're ashamed of people who stab us in the back and go back on their word and people that we, we, can't, we can't trust. If we treat Jesus this way, if we're ashamed of Him and His words, we're communicating by our actions that we don't trust Him. We don't trust that He's the source of healing, that He's the source of life, that He's the source of every sustenance, everything that you, everything that you need. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be like Him, you must not be ashamed because you have no reason to be ashamed. He provides you and continues to provide you with everything that you need. And He has demonstrated time and time again that He is trustworthy. Don't be ashamed of Him. Trust Him. You must not be ashamed. As we mentioned earlier as we close, Satan, he tried to do everything that he could do to keep Jesus off the cross, to keep Jesus from doing what he must do. But he failed. He didn't succeed. Now what Satan is trying to do, he tries to keep you from doing everything that you must do. Ask yourself, will he succeed or will he fail?
The message is yours as we stand and as we sing.